We made USAA insurance for veterans like James. When he found out how much USAA was helping members save, he said, It's time to switch. We'll help you find the right coverage at the right price. USAA. What you're made of, we're made for. Restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Boys in a Band podcast. I'm Richard Gallagher. And I'm Peter Smith. And on this week's show, we're joined by Steve Bays, the lead singer from Hot Hot Heat. We had so much fun chatting to Steve, didn't we, Rich? Yeah, we did indeed. Yeah, he just gave us story after story. So you'll see, this pod is slightly longer than usual this week, but we thought we'd be doing you a bit of a disservice if we just started cutting things out for uh, no reason than other to trim the time on it. Yeah, indeed. It's a, it's a really good listen. He gave us some great insight, not only into the band's journey, but also what the 2000s indie scene was like at the time. The, uh, the experiences he had touring with some huge acts playing over here in the UK. And anyone who did go and see them, um, we'll know just how energetic Steve is on stage. And it didn't escape the attention of one Carl Barat from the Libertines either. Have a listen to Steve here on what Carl made of his stage presence and what he was trying to achieve. I remember actually playing one show in London and uh, Carl from the Libertines was was there. And, and after we played, he, we were like went out for drinks and stuff. And he was like, man, you are such a peacock. And like, kind of like slamming me. And I was like, really? Like, Cause I never really thought of it. I was just, you know, I was just like a small town kid that if people weren't moving, then the show wasn't going well, you know, in at least where we were from in our scene. And so I just like, my main goal wasn't to, to be a vocalist or a songwriter. It was to sort of be uh, the conductor of the, of the energy of the night. And I really did try and prioritize removing pretentiousness from the room, removing like uptightness and trying to make people feel like, hey, you know, you can be a snob any other night, but tonight, like, let's just, let's just make this a party and have fun, you know? Yeah, I know all about those hot, hot heat live shows. Um, if you listen to the pod, you'll, you'll hear me uh, sort of present to Steve a ticket stub that I found from a hot, hot heat gig at the Astoria in way back in 2003 which is scarily 17 years ago now, Rich. So, uh, those years are really uh, added up, haven't they? <laughs> they are, they've flown on by. But, um, but yeah, it was really fun to look back on those days with Steve. So uh, settle in, put your feet up, and have a listen to this extended Boys in the Band podcast with Steve Bays from Hot Hot Heat. And of course, as always, we'd love to hear from you. So uh, do drop us a line on our social media pages and do leave us a review as well. But for now, here's Steve Bays with a Hot Hot Heat story. This week on the Boys in the Band podcast, we're delighted to be joined by Steve Bays from Hot Hot Heat. How's it going, Steve? I'm doing quite well. Excellent. Great, <laughs> yeah. great to speak to you. Thanks for coming on. Oh, yeah. man, I'm, I'm uh, honoured that anybody gives a crap. It's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're looking forward to this one, Steve. We were um, both yeah, really into the band back in the day, and uh, so it's going to be good fun sort of reminiscing with you, hopefully. Um, awesome. We kick off. Yeah with these pods with a sound check as you know as i know you've you've tuned into a few and the first question we always ask is whereabouts are you i'm in uh british columbia canada in a suburb outside of i don't know if it's a suburb but it's like a smaller town outside of vancouver called new westminster and nice. uh yeah just just loving loving life here i Moved here a few years ago and spent the better part of a year con constructing a little studio on the property here. 
um, and so I just work in this little studio here all the time, working on a few of my own records, some soundtrack work, and uh, a lot of kind of production and mixing for other bands. Yeah, cool. We'll definitely uh, yeah. hear a bit more about about that as as goes on. Cool. But um, obviously, still very much in in the music business. So, um, who are you listening to right now? What recommendations do you have for us? Um, is hmm. well, I've been working on a hip hop record lately, so I've been kind of just getting into s- stuff that's more production based, just to study sub bass and stuff like that. So I don't know if I'll reference that so much. Um, uh, what am I listening? To? Uh, Cron Cronbin? Do you guys is are they big over there? I don't know if that's just a Canadian thing or what. Um, I don't know how you pronounce it. Cronbin is that a thing over there? Oh, no, no, no. Tell us more. What's it about? Just kind of like just like just jammy, uh, jammy indie rock that's like a little bit too progressive to play at folk at like the folk fest circuit, but. Um, but probably they're, I bet they're doing folk fest circuits. It's like kind of like hippie ish, but with the sensibilities of tasteful indie rock. Um, and it's just jammy. Um, and I just, I like it for kind of just putting on and puttering around the house. Um, and I'm still a sucker for, uh, for Tame Impala. Like they, they can do no wrong. Yeah, um, we've had a lot of love for that band on, uh, on this podcast yeah. lots of artists giving them a shout out yeah oh man yeah it's just it's just great stuff and i just love i as someone that that does a lot of production myself i just love that he's you know like i've got a new record on the go where i'm mainly the vocalist because we just have such a sick keyboard player but then i also do a lot of the drums as well and then i do a lot of the en- engineering and mixing and mastering so I kind of I'm a fan of the band members that do a bunch of different tasks because my other bandmates they they kind of do a little bit of everything as well and yeah these days I think that's like the key to to being a band is you know you got to be doing I do like I like to do the artwork too and work on the videos as well and so the three of us kind of just jump duties constantly um just to stay active and try and get the benefits of working on an album for two years but then also you know have the entire package put together so that you can approach a label and just say here's everything here's our media bucket (laughs) (laughs) you know now we don't need to like now you don't need to harass us constantly Uh, we've got everything in order here you go yeah and really just take control of that whole process that whole uh, that whole product that you're putting out there yeah yeah just because uh i like with hot heat it was every step of the process was um it was just a lot of hours spent just to make the next step happen and those hours weren't creative hours so like Mm. you know just to be able to get a record recorded um you know you it takes ages to get a label to give you the money and then you you got to develop a relationship and convey what you're looking for and and then that person often won't be the mixer so you have to like find like who are the best mixers are they free can you afford them how do you convey what you're looking for using the the same language you know like the word sleepy might mean one thing to one person and another thing to another person the word dirty or crunchy can mean like 50 different things so um so yeah i just found it i could be more creative more often if i 
started doing the videos and the recording and the artwork and stuff myself. Not to say I always do it. Um, when I'm lucky enough and I get to work with people that um, are doing something awesome and they're within budget or they're just passionate and, and we're on the same page and, you know, we can just kind of flow together. Like that's, that's the best when that happens, but you just can't really rely on having a, you know, a photographer or an engineer or whatever, like ready to go every minute of the day. So, yeah, sure. So obviously you spend a lot of time still in the studio, but before, you know, before this pandemic, before we were all locked down, were you getting to gigs re- regularly? Did you uh, have any sort of standout shows that you've, you've seen in the last 12 months or so, which, which uh, at the front of your mind um, still? Actually the last show I went to, um, I've stayed in touch with Albert from the strokes every now and again. And he, uh, he put me on the list for their arena show. And it was the first time they've ever done an arena show here in town. And, uh, and I was, I was really stoked to, I was like, kind of felt proud of them just being a band from the noughties and for like filling an arena, you know? Um, And, and even just like getting, getting back together and just doing it. Like I, I have no idea what their relationship is like creatively or whatever. And, uh, but the fact that they were doing an arena and it was seemed, I don't know if it was sold out or not, but it sure seemed like it was. And yeah, it was just rad to see a band from the era that I was felt like I grew up in, you know, like doing an arena and I don't know if they considered it a reunion or what, but Mm. I thought it was awesome. And a lot of my friends were there, um, you know, Uh, so that was really cool. And then, Sorry, I was just going to say there. I mean, they're just, you know, they're such an important band for this era of music that we talk about on the podcast, weren't they? The Strays is just, certainly in the UK, they, it was just such a game changer when, when that debut album landed over here. Um, so, yeah, it's interesting that they're still going because, you know, obviously so many bands that sort of followed them or tried to, tried to follow in their footsteps, um, you know, fell by the wayside. But it's interesting to see them, as you say, still making music together. Totally. Yeah, it's, I mean, they're... I just think no matter when like a band reaches that level, no matter, um, no matter how many does like desires and curiosities they have to make music outside of that band, there's always going to be something nagging at the back of their heads. I would imagine to say, you know, a million times the people will hear whatever you do if it has this name attached to it. So, (laughs) so yeah, either that or they're just, broken new cash I don't know. <laughs> yeah nice little earner for them those arena shows um yeah but steve make up the breakdown Look, this is one of my favorite albums of that era as well um and you know it's great memories of listening to that album with my mates and you know bandages uh, the single which is you know it's just played at almost every indie club night that we were going to at that time it was uh yeah real standout song at that time um We'll get to the album in a cool. minute, but just, you know, just yeah. bring us up to speed where the Hot Hot Heat story started uh, for you guys in Canada. You know, what was the inspirations? How did you guys come together? How did you, you know, form that band in the first place? Sure, yeah. Um, that was, came together in my parents' basement. They were out of town. Um, started with uh, a hot box in the bathroom, in the shower, and um, it was just kind of... Uh, <laughs> It's just like a, a hot and steamy night 
<laughs> we just we no like we just had we just had a jam space in my parents basement when when i was uh a young young lad and we would just uh jam with all sorts of different bands and you know always trying to find a new jam space that was always the hard part and you know we were um between the four of us we were always in all sorts of different bands so i was going to university at the time um, and like barely, barely holding on to a desire to do school because I had no idea what I wanted to do and just kind of seemed like the right thing to do, but totally the wrong thing to do. And, um, and then I was, and then, then I remember we all kind of moved out at the same time. We all moved into a house, which is kind of like a punk house. And we would throw on, we would form different bands and like write six or seven songs just for one show like a house party that we were throwing and i remember early versions of the rapture came and played um our basement and like uh, i remember like one time it was like one of the dudes from modest mouse was there and like we we would and then we just had different uh different kind of musicians from around the pacific northwest of the states and canada that would just we you'd convince them somehow to take the ferry and come to the island where we mm -hmm. lived just mainly because we wanted to see their band play. Um, and uh, we just didn't really have access to it because we couldn't really afford to take the ferry very often because it was like a hundred bucks each way, um, which was really expensive when you're a broke kid living on your own and trying to go to school while working. Like I think I had three or four jobs at once. And, but yeah, somehow just like always starting a new band, always playing shows, always trying to convince other bands to come to see us. And then eventually we put out the uh we put out a little cassette tape um and we did a west coast tour and i remember we actually made it as far as i think san diego um and we played at this kind of legendary place at the time called the, the che cafe and we opened for locust and i think we had we had brought 100 cassette demos that we had done on a four track um and we sold them all out that night. And I remember being, we were thinking, okay, like finally one of our bands, somebody's like, people seem to just collectively dig it. Um, so that was like a turning point. And then it just kind of accelerated from there where we started getting asked to play uh, more and more shows around town. But then we kind of broke up because we, we had a different singer at the time and it was over a small thing. It was like, he got a girlfriend um, and it just felt like he wasn't quite as obsessive about the music as we were. Um, and then right around that time I started recording demos in my bedroom. I think this is like 99 still maybe 2000. Um, and then I got asked to put out a solo uh, seven inch or something uh, by a friend of ours, Andy Dixon who had put out the first Hot It Heat vinyl with our original singer. And then Paul, you know, but we had sort of just disbanded. And then Paul, the other kind of longtime original member from Hot It Heat, he, he was like, well, why don't we just have you sing instead of you putting on a solo record? Why don't you sing over some new Hot It Heat songs? And then um, the first show or two was really bad. And, then I just started recording our demos and I sent them around and we kind of started to become a whole new thing. And at the time I remember 
like I was kind of a yelpy singer, but I was really trying to sing with melody. And I, I just, you know, coming out of the kind of heavy synth punk scene, it felt really rebellious to try and inject bits of melody at the time. Um, whereas now you would kind of expect all indie rock bands to have great, you know, vocalists. <laughs> but at the time, it was still a very like screamy, yelpy time from underground music. Um, so yeah, there was this transition where where we really wanted to add melody. Um, and around that time we said, you know, let's stop going out to the bar, let's just stay at home, drink tea, focus on all the background things that have to do with being a band, you know, sending your, your demos out to people and taking a press photo. And, you know, I tried to make uh, some music videos for us. I tried to record our stuff and uh, somewhere along the way, uh, you know, we sent our, demos out to like 20 different labels i think um one responded and said pass the other 18 said just didn't say anything um but then sub pop said we're interested in you guys we like the punky stuff that you've put out on vinyl but this is before i was the singer and uh so why don't you come down and play a show like a sub pop showcase kind of thing um, and you'll be opening for The Liars, which at the time, it's still one of the best shows I've ever seen in my life was The Liars. This was like 2001, I think. Um, and it, they were just phenomenal. And we didn't play a great show, to be honest. Um, and so we thought we blew it. We came home. And then months later, we were going to call a local label in town and just say, hey, you know what? Because we, we heard back from this one local label and we said, we were going to say, you know what, we'll sign with you. And then that night, Sub Pop called and they said, let's do it. So we all high-fived. We were so stoked because <laughs> we grew up on Nirvana and Sub Pop was kind of the only legendary label that we knew of, you know, like other than big major labels, which weren't really that cool at the time. Um, so we were so geeked to sign to Sub Pop. And uh, they said you know, Chris Waller from Death Cab, he's kind of the new producer in town. Why don't we just, we'll sign you to a one album deal, but first let's just do a few songs with Chris. Um, so we did a few songs with Chris Walla um, at the studio that, which he still runs. I just found it actually, it's, it's in uh, Ballard, Washington, and it's where they recorded the Nirvana Bleach album and all this early Soundgarden stuff. And it's like, if, for a kid that grew up in the 90s on grunge like it was really a cool thing to record uh at this this place near seattle and be on sub pop like we were just fanboys you know first and uh we did three songs with chris and uh then they combined it with two demos that i i had recorded and mixed um which was really bizarre because it when I listen to the mixes now, I'm like, Oh my God, what was I thinking? <laughs> but uh, <laughs> yeah, it was really weird. So we put out knock, 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 which is our first sub pop EP. And then um, remember shortly after that, um, we, we opened for the shins and mud honey and at the sub pop 20 year reunion. And that was kind of the first time when I thought, Oh man, maybe this is catching on. And I remember um, James Mercer from the shins, talking to me and just being like you know what we really love that ep we're we're watching you guys we're we're keeping track um 
And then we put out, then we recorded Make Up the Breakdown shortly after that with a little bit of confidence after having started to have built a little buzz around the sub hop community. And uh, we, we did it in seven days. Um, and uh, yeah, and it was, we, I just remember I was still writing lyrics on napkins on the ferry from Victoria to Vancouver um, where we recorded it at, at Mushroom Studios. And uh, yeah, I was still like bandages initially was gonna, that was just kind of, I was singing that for phonetics or cadence or whatever you call it. And it just kind of rolled off the tongue nice and I just didn't have time to change change the lyric. I couldn't think of anything better. And it was the first song we recorded. And it was just kind of like, go, 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 go. Like there was like to do a full album in 10 days or sorry, seven days, which included mixing it as well. It's just ridiculous. You know, like I'm working on a record for a band said the whale, you know, that <clears throat> that are do really well here in Canada, the awesome band. And uh, we're, our plan is to do as record a song over two days um which i kind of and then which always usually meets a third day so we're doing three days per song which i would consider super fast to get a well-done record to to record and mix a song over three days is like insanely fast so how we did 10 songs in seven days including mix i have no idea but yeah breakneck speed that was and you said um you know you sort of had a bit of confidence going to the studio was that was that sort of built up from the sort of reaction you were getting at gigs you, know, you must be feeling you know, very confident in in the songs that you'd written well it's it's funny listening to um listening to your last podcast um with um i'm blanking on his name he was the super confident one in the band um dorian from the long blondes Dorian, yeah. yeah. He was just like so confident and he knew like they were doing like the best songs and um, and it, it, that's like, part of me is like, oh, that's, a, that's kind of like a UK thing to, to have the guy in the band that's, that's like super confident. Um, but it's a, it's a really attractive feature, like, you know, listening to an interview with someone like that. Um, and I always felt like we were all, we didn't have that type of, confidence or leadership um we were all just very kind of we had no idea where we stood in the grand scheme of things because we all were fans of the local bands that we grew up with in victoria on this little island but within the that little community we were super confident you know we had been we had been playing shows for years and years and years and we were kind of known as um like i know when paul Paul says from how he, he says that like he wanted like the best musicians from Victoria in one band. Um, and he was kind of at the time, the best drummer. I, w I wasn't the best keyboard player, but I was the only keyboard player in Victoria. Um, up until then, Paul was always on guitar and I was the drummer and I was, I was like, you know, I will brag about this. I was an awesome metal drummer. I was like the <laughs> best metal drummer at the time. But then he's like, yeah, my dad traded like a Pantera CD and 40 bucks for this Juno 6. Um, so it was just the only keyboard we had. And in retrospect, the Juno 6 and the Juno 60 are probably, it's probably the coolest keyboard of all time. 
Um, and we just happened to have that. And so I just took what I had remembered from old piano lessons from when I was a kid that were essentially like mainly classical stuff. Um, and I would just play classical chords, but then throw in a weird note that felt scronky. And, but because I was a drummer, I always played it very rhythmically like a drummer. And then when I started to do vocals, I wasn't a great singer really yet, but, um, but I sang very rhythmically because I just, I thought like a metal drummer, you know? Um, so, and then our bass player, Dustin, he was, he was the coolest guy in Victoria by far. Like you, you'd, you'd see him walking down the street and he had, you know, like an eight inch pompadour. He looked like an immaculate representation of Morrissey at his height of cool. <laughs> and, uh, and then he, he was the only guy I knew that, that really like dug into the bass, like in a really heavy way. And he played it really scronky and angular and weird. And I think it, I think it was because we were really influenced by this band from Victoria called No Means No, which, which are probably one of the coolest punk bands of all time. If, I mean, they are my favorite punk band of all time. Um, so we had this like distorted bass. We had no guitar for the first few years, um, just, just my keyboards. And then Paul was doing these crazy metal beats, but he would just we were kind of influenced by Jeremy Green from Modest Mouse at the time where he would take a drum fill and just loop it over and over. And so all of a sudden the drum fill became a beat um, instead of just a fill. And it, it felt less wankery because it was, it was looped. So it was like sort of like a early nod at like kind of indie rock hip hop in a weird way. And then, um, and then when we added Dante and guitar, it was, it was basically like Paul and Dante, like were hanging out at a party that lasted, I think like two or three days without sleep. And they just jammed and jammed and jammed and just played the Beatles and <laughs> over and over and over. And at the time, like for years we were obsessed with the Beatles. Um, so yeah, it was kind of like combining like our roots of metal and hardcore with um, just like weird local indie rock from Victoria um, and just a love of the Beatles and you know we just we knew early on that the Beatles you know if you study the Beatles it's really like the greatest education you can you can have um, if you combine a study of the Beatles with any genre you're gonna that whatever you're doing is gonna end up way better basically you know yeah brilliant combination uh, for sure so um, yeah. yeah so once that album was uh was recorded in those 10 days and it, and it landed everywhere, you know, over here, you know, as Pete said earlier, it had a real huge impact in the UK. So what are your memories of actually coming over to the UK, playing here, the, you know, the venues you played, the band you played with, the fans, what, what do you remember of that time in the UK? Um, yeah, it was, it was a total trip. It was so rad. It was like our first show, we get to the UK, our first show ever. Um, and I, I remember at the time it was a really big status thing to to have a tour booked in Europe because this was pre, basically pre-internet. Um, and, you know, I, we had been in other bands and we would book tours ourselves. And it's like, you know, we would, we would uh, subscribe to Heart Attack magazine or Maximum Rock and Roll. And at the back there was, there was like names of people that 
in certain cities that you could contact to book a show. But yeah, so you meet these promoters in the back of a magazine and, uh, and then when you're on stage, you say, hey, can we crash with anybody? And there's always somebody that would let you crash at their house. So our first UK tour, just to get over there, was such a crazy thing. And then we had a bus. Our first night was, was a bus and it was just like the craziest feeling to have a bus <laughs> after, you know, like sleeping on floors and, you know, basically paying to play with Hot at Heat and all our other bands before that because we were probably in like 20 bands before that. And, uh, and then on that first tour, we there, we were, we were on CD UK. We did Top of the Pops. We were on the cover of the NME. It was, it was nuts. It was crazy. Amazing. So what year was this, do you think, Steve? Uh, I think maybe 2003 or 2002. <laughs> maybe 2002 or 2003 something like that yeah um, i've been i've been going through <laughs> i've shown this to rich earlier i've been going through my ticket stubs i don't know if you've still got me on camera but this is hot, oh, hot heat this is a hot hot oh heat gosh. ticket stub which is now 17 years old so okay is... let me do a screenshot <laughs> <laughs> go ahead okay hold on i gotta get this yeah london astoria wednesday the 29th of october 2003 what a night, Pete. Oh, yeah. oh wait, got it. Awesome. <laughs> so there you oh go. So gosh. that's, so that's uh, yeah, that was up in my pile of ticket stubs. And uh, I was going through them the other month, actually, and sort of spotted that one. I thought, oh, yeah, I'll keep that one to one side. And um, yeah, so that's the London Astoria, which is like this amazing venue um, right in the middle of town, just off Oxford Street. And it's now been knocked down because uh, they're building a railway line through the middle of it for some reason. But um, <laughs> the Astoria, the Astoria has been knocked down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's gone. Yeah. Ah, that was one of my favorite shows. It's just of like all time. iconic venue as well. But um, man, gone, that, yeah. When I think, when I think of um, when I think of touring in Europe and the UK, that shows just it's one of the first things that pops out because it was like. Yeah, what was the capacity like two thousand or something? Yeah, about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah it was so great, um, and it was such a good time for the band. And um, yeah, we just we just had a blast, and we wanted to capitalize on every way you could have fun while on tour. So, mm. um, you know, like even when I like I, there's not a lot of uh, we did like TV some TV performances around that that time and like i was saying and they're on vhs or on a cd rom spindle somewhere so i'm gonna go through them one day soon and upload it um just because i've had more interest in that era of hot at heat recently which is kind of nice and it's got me thinking nostalgically too and but there's this one grainy uh performance of hot at heat on letterman and uh from i think 2002 or three and I realized the thing that was special about the bands then was it was, it was four people that all wanted the spotlight the same amount. Like it was just four a personality types all trying to get the spotlight. Um, and it's, it's kind of rare to see that. Like often there's like, you know, like in Interpol, they had their Carlos D um, you know, like, like, you know there's always like that one maybe two guys that are like really want to take the spotlight but with hot at heat it was four guys competing for the spotlight at all times um and that that period of time you know the astoria i guess 2003 um it was like 
every party we could go to, we went to, you know, like we were at every, we went out like before the show, after the show, we just had infinite energy. Um, we, it was beyond our expectations at that time, like that we had even gotten there at all. So we weren't thinking about the sustainability of it or anything, you know? Your shows were always just sort of, yeah, sort of high energy, weren't they? It was just so, like, so full on. But yeah, it was uh, yeah, support acts that night. Franz Ferdinand were one of the bands supporting you that night, along with uh, Fiery Furnaces um, as well. But yeah, Franz Ferdinand, that must have been just before they sort of took off themselves as well. That was... Um, yeah. That. Yeah, I think, I think it was... I remember they were... I think we were playing Wolverhampton on that tour. And... I remember them playing over the PA during their soundtrack. Um, like they were referencing mixes from their first record. Um, just deciding if they were approving of it or not. And I remember thinking like, oh man, they're really ripping the, the Strokes vocal sounds like in a big way. Because I, re I remember I was, I was into the distorted vocal sound thing. And then the Strokes record came out right before Makeup the Breakdown. And I was like, we got to go clean on the vocals. We can't, we can't, like, we'll be ripping them off. We'll be ripping them off. Um, and then when Franz Ferdinand went distorted with their vocals, I was like, ah, oh, man, maybe, maybe we should have gone distorted with the vocals. <laughs> and then, uh, but like, I just loved, I loved them so much. I think we did a couple tours with them, like, funny enough, opening for us, which is so bizarre now because they've, it blew up so huge and every time they would even though it wasn't out yet every time they would uh play take me out i would run from the the green room if i wasn't already side stage and i would sing along with it and then eventually for for the last few shows that we played with them i ended up jumping on stage with them and singing take me out every time and then uh and then in they had the brilliant move of putting take me out out on uh, January 2nd and the strategy was that everyone would be pretty hungover and stuff so there wouldn't be a lot of competition so they'd be higher on the charts <laughs> and they they debuted at number two and I was like oh man like that was the first time I started thinking about strategy and thinking about how in the UK you know status and chart position is such a it's such a factor actually yeah um Whereas, you know, in Canada, it was, it was all about being like modest and, you know, it was just any sort of success you had was, at least at the time, we perceived it as kind of shameful. So you like downplay everything. Um, but in the UK, it was like, you know, your stats really matter. Um, and I remember on that, if, I'm not sure if it was that tour, if that was our first tour or if it was one before that, I can't remember, but um because I think the first time we ever played the UK was actually at the Barfly in London. Um, I could be wrong. Anyway, either way, um, I just remember we Bandages was on a rotation on BBC. Um, and then it got pulled because of the Iraq war. And they said it was insensitive. And I remember trying to argue it in the press that it shouldn't have been pulled because seven nation army i think was was out at the same time and yeah. uh anyway so yeah, yeah we, it, i read that story earlier when we were sort of yeah sort of preparing to chat to you and it was just like that just doesn't make any sense to me if you actually listen no. to that song it's got nothing to do with with that at all i just can't see yeah that was that was a weird one 
Yeah, er, early hints of early hints of uh, um, cancel culture poking mm. its head up, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Well, regardless, you know, obviously, as we said, that album, you know, it was obviously really went down well here. Really important album in in that scene generally. I saw a post on on uh, the Instagram page, or your Instagram page, or maybe the band's Instagram page recently, where someone had sort of graffitied a selection of album artworks on a wall. Um, it was like the Killers, Rapture, LCD Sound System, Franz Ferdinand, and Make Up the Breakdown. So, you know, it's, it's held in high regard still now. So what are your reflections on it sort of all these years on um, of that debut? Um, yeah, it's, I had no idea where we would stand at the time um, but we we had so many advantages um, that really helped, you know, like Pitchfork gave it a 8.7, which I knew nothing about Pitchfork. So I didn't realize at the time was like, you know, such a blessing, um, maybe more so for, for, you know, this touring the States and stuff, but um, that really helped. And then, you know, we had, we had an awesome label. Um, Sub pop was, you know, incredible. And then, um tony kewell who signed us over there um he really he really guided us in in a way where everyone that we were surrounded with was really cool so we had a really cool booking agent we had a um you know we are in the artwork was the um the in-house uh artist at sub pop so we couldn't um who's oh, i can't believe i'm forgetting his name uh he's gonna hate me but he did all the artwork for every sub pop record for years and years so kind of prevented you from doing something whack um i remember that we wrote the bio ourselves and they were like no 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 we've got the writer for you you know so we had the benefits of being young and dumb and just like super spunky and freaky but we didn't have the ability to make stupid mistakes like writing our own bio because i read i read the draft we wrote recently <laughs> and oh my god it was just like the would have been the most embarrassing thing <laughs> just so poorly written and so dumb um and uh yeah and then we had mike watson as our press agent in the uk which was you know i he was like a young upstart but he was just like really earnest and sweet and humble and honest and uh, i think that's a you know the the main reason we were able to be in featured in the nme at that point and then you know on the cover which was such a, a cool thing and then um we were signed to we ended up being signed to sire in the states and then be unique in um which was kind of i guess like the indie label under the umbrella of uh of warner brothers uk um so yeah there was just like a lot of really cool people that had great taste that could help guide us you know with things like you know posters and opening acts um you know i think our agent at the time mike greek he was really connected to like the franz ferdinand camp and fiery furnaces and stuff so it's like all these little variables where you know you make one thing on your own as a band that is tasteful because that's the one thing you know is making music we've been doing that collectively um for years and years and years so that we could bring to the table but then all these other things that need to be in place to 
to get to the level that we got to for a while there, it, it really comes from having a great team. And we, you know, every team member you add that is a credible person with, you know, a good soul and, you know, not an, an asshole um, who's connected with other cool, nice people. You know, everyone talks, it's a small world. And uh, yeah, we were just, we kind of, were thrown into a really great team in the UK. And then I think that just like trickled to all other aspects of our touring life um, all over the world. And, and uh, yeah, it was a really great time. It was a really great time. Yeah. Awesome time. Such a, an amazing time with bands There's a real indie boom around that time. And uh, yeah, so, so many good bands for us to, to go out and see and listen to. Um, but we're going to take a, a quick break there, Steve. In part two, we'll chat a little bit more about the Hot Hot Heat journey, including, uh, including the reunion in 2016 for that fifth and final self-titled album. Hey, I'm Steve Bays from Hot Hot Heat, and you're listening to the Boys in the Band podcast. You're listening to the Boys in the Band podcast. For more naughty nostalgia, check out our Twitter, Facebook and Instagram pages and make sure you hit subscribe to the podcast for more interviews like this. Welcome back to the Boys in the Band podcast where we're joined by Steve Bays from Hot Hot Heat. So we've covered the, the, the debut album and uh, the breakout of Hot Hot Heat. Um, one thing we want to touch upon next, though, was that the guitarist, uh, Dante Dakar, announced he was leaving in October 2004, but then he carried on working with the band on the second album, Elevator, uh, which then came out in April 2005. Um, now, I remember being so into this album, and it was interesting to hear you earlier talking about the Beatles' influence, because I could definitely hear sort of more Beatles melodies in this album. But um, I was interested to see how that worked with, with, with Dante staying on, but also just, just that that follow-up you know it's notoriously tough to follow up a successful debut so what were the challenges for uh, making the second album after make up the breakdown and did the process change and and sort of how do you reflect on that album now yeah um uh i'd say i mean now i kind of i see the i see the value of of all the the hot heat stuff now that it's so far in the past um i just kind of look at it nostalgically and and I don't usually surround myself with uh, Google news alerts and and like music critics. So like, <laughs> if someone brings up the like a record of the band, it's usually a positive thing, which is nice. But I remember at the when it came out, like we were kind of you know bracing for impact because we knew about the second album um, challenges in terms of you know you have your honeymoon if you're lucky with your first album and then the second album is just like a field day to to be critiqued um and so we we looked at it like one of two ways either you you replicate what you did on your first record um and try and do it exactly the same um which and you know in retrospect i kind of wish you know that we did one more record exactly the same as make up the breakdown um but at the time we we thought no like the way we got to make up the breakdown was we were constantly trying to challenge ourselves and evolve um with every new band we were in and we we kind of looked at each record with hot heat like we were almost a new band 
And so we would set um, parameters for, and, you know, guidelines for what the template was going to be for each record. Um, and it was really, you know, from, and I, I still am that way to this day. I'm, every album I work on, there's like a new thing that I'm really trying to focus on and, and, you know, take the best of things from the past and add it to this new area that I feel like I'm lacking. But, you know, it's like with Guns N' Roses, like I love Use Your Illusions 1 and 2, but could they have stood to have done another Appetite for Destruction? For sure. So uh, I wish we did maybe another Appetite before Elevator, but um, we, you know, we really got called a lot of different, we were given a lot of different labels on Make Up the Breakdown. Um, in the UK, they called it Funk Punk. This is like, you know, pre-indie disco or whatever you call it, dance indie or whatever. It was like, they weren't sure if we were a garage band or a dance band or a punk band or, um, you know, art punk. Um, <laughs> so yeah, we, uh, we Amazing just, all these different we, labels that people come up with trying to sort of, uh, you know, pigeonhole yeah, someone. Pigeonhole, into, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, I always liked the art punk thing just because we weren't, you know, we were sloppy. So the punk thing is like a nice way of saying something. And art is something that there's like an implied evolution, you know? Um, so I, I always like that. But, but yeah, I, we, we kind of thought we saw the writing on the wall for, for dance indie rock and that it was, you know, it was going to be old news by the time our record came out in 2005. Um, but I didn't realize, you know, looking back at it now, like, I don't know if, if indie dance will ever go away. There's always going to be an, an intrinsic entertainment value and a gift given to the listeners and to DJs. When you throw a dance beat on anything, it's always going to have a place in the world. Um, but we were really trying to run from that. Um, so, so we just thought, you know, like, that, let's make this the album where we write songs that you can play acoustically around a fire or in your bedroom um, and just make them song songs and see if we can take the sound of hot at heat and, and like, like merge it with like actual songs. And I'd never, I didn't really even think of myself as a songwriter um, at the time but I was like I guess we're writing songs because before we just went in the jam spot and jammed and whatever happened happened um, and then around that time I was also really uh, starting to get more and more into recording and so I recorded all the demos and stuff um, and I think we ended up choosing the songs more based on what demos sounded the most tolerable um, then we did like the actual songs and which is a shame because there's some b-sides from that album that i always wished had made the cut and then that was also the case with the record after that as well and um <clears throat> i remember in 2005 after we finished elevator i went into warner brothers in burbank california and went down to the downstairs floor because that's where uh perry watts russell was and he had he was famous for signing Radiohead, but he was working for Warner at that point. And I would always kind of 
go get secret A&R tips from him because um, <clears throat> I loved Craig Aronson. He was a hustler and he was a great guy. But when it came to like big kind of taste-based questions, I would secretly pillage Perry Watts Russell down in the basement. And when I went down there, um, the, they were cranking all the demos from Hot Heat Elevator um, in the art department and kind of it was lingering into Perry's office. So I went over and I was like, oh, why are you guys listening to the demos? Like we just spent, you know, 300 grand recording uh, Elevator with Dave Sardi. <laughs> and then the art, the head of the art department at the time, he was just like, I don't know. I just, I just prefer the demos. And I was like, <laughs> I knew it, you know? And that was my first hint at there is some magic to the demos of, of albums. Um, and then this next thing happened on the, uh, the next Hot Eight Heat record. I stepped up the recording of those demos. Um, and, uh, I rem uh, and I, yeah, I just remember thinking like, man, yes, it sounds more polished and complete on the final version, but there's something about the demos. So after our third album, Happiness Limited, um, the, from that point on, I kind of basically made the demos, the albums. Um, not to say that I didn't take them from demos to polished versions, but um, I just, I really, ever since 2008 onwards, I've always wanted that um, initial spark, the first night you write something captured, because I just think there's a personality to it <clears throat> that's just so magical, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, that sort of leads into, you know, you, we're going to touch on in a minute about you building, you guys building your own studio as well. That, that sounds like a fascinating story and the idea behind that. And we'll sort of pick your brains on that one in a minute. But just to sort of put a bit of context around that, that sort of what happened after that second album and into Happiness Territory, you were touring with likes of Weezer, Foo Fighters, Killers, Snow Patrol. You know, this is real sort of, we mentioned it earlier, sort of boom time for that indie music scene, wasn't it? It must have been... You know, been great yeah. to be playing those huge shows with those bands and being right at the heart of it. Yeah, it was, it, that really was the transition where it was kind of a sink or swim. Um, you know, when, when Elevator came out, because with Make Up the Breakdown, it came out on Sub Pop, but then it got re-released on by Warner a year later. So we kind of toured that album worldwide twice, you know, Make Up the Breakdown the first time with the sub pop push and which, you know, there's still plenty of shows where we're playing to seven people, you know, a night in like Iowa, you know, and then like, you know, like driving all day and all night and then sleeping on a floor just to play to seven people opening for a band that you knew in your heart was way worse than you, you know, because you just didn't have the clout yet. And then redoing the same album push, but under the Warner wing, um, and that was like it was it was so cool because we got to play like these punk rock songs but we had the promotion of a company that actually was willing to invest in us and it was like it was a pretty freaky transition like not gonna lie it was it was weird like the first first time we started doing like the arena circuit i just remember feeling like do you ever have that dream where you're in the classroom and you realize you're naked. I think it's a pretty common dream. I, I have it all the time still, but where all of a sudden you realize everyone can see your junk and you're like, what, how am I here? That's kind of how it felt. 
you know? Um, and so I just remember like our, uh, our sound guy was like, uh, you really got to get in-ear monitors for this arena tour. So first show I'm testing out these in-ear monitors and they block out the sound completely. Um, and all that you hear in your ears is whatever you've told the monitor guy to put in them. So I could hear my voice. I could hear a bit of the other guys, but you know, not too loud. Um, and I could hear my keys and it just between songs, you don't hear the applause because these monitors are essentially also just complete block sound blocking earplugs. Um, and it was just horrifying. I just felt like nobody was applauding and stuff. So I remember that first Foo Fighters tour, like every show I was trying to tweak the monitors to feel less freaked out. Um, and then I was, you know, also dealing with things like we were playing up to probably like, I don't know, at least a couple hundred shows a year. And I was starting to have the occasional, sh you know, show where I would lose my voice partway through the set. You know, I remember opening for, for garbage um, at some like, like one of those bowl shows where it's like 5,000 people somewhere in California. And um, yeah, I remember our, our manager was there and the label was all there because it was close enough to LA. And um, it was a really kind of well-advertised high pressure show. And about four or five songs in, I basically completely lost my voice and it was just like a squawk that was coming out of my, my voice box. And uh, it was just the most embarrassing feeling. Um, but you learn from those things. And I, I remember thinking, okay, next time that happens, instead of acting shy and getting like mopey on stage, I'm going to just rock out harder than, than ever. So I kind of, anytime my voice would start to go, you know, um, cause I wasn't a trained singer either. So I didn't really, I wasn't doing techniques and I didn't even know to warm up at the time. Um, I wasn't really doing anything to prevent my voice from going. So often my voice would start to get really hoarse by the end of the set. And so I would just rock harder. So people were looking at me like, you know, do jump kicks off the kick drum instead of thinking about what I was singing. And then I would, uh, I had little hand signals to, uh, the front of house to to crank like the echo effect on my voice so that you couldn't really hear what I was saying so much. <laughs> um and yeah so that was kind of like the beginning of us having to to you know our sound guy I remember he just kept saying you're not a punk band anymore you're not a punk band like you you're a pop band I was like no we're not no we're not you know but you know we were starting to play with Interpol and Queens of the Stone Age and um and like on that level and uh so i had to start thinking about things like my voice more and uh it was actually a uh, singer of modest mouse isaac brock he he told me i noticed he was doing vocal warm-ups and and i was like what like you're like i because i had heard stories of him like taking acid and stuff before they went on stage and i just thought he was like the true indie punk which he is but um but yeah, he told me about this girl, Melissa Cross, who does uh, vocal training for Lamb of God and all these like metal bands and stuff. So he got me hip to her and I just watched her YouTube videos and I started warming up my voice. And then I, and then I realized, oh man, I can, I actually kind of can sing with pretty good control. So going into Hot at Heat 2007, around that time, 
I started to actually get psyched on the idea of maybe I am an actual singer. Maybe I am an actual songwriter, you know, and just kind of exploring what I could do outside of just being like a, like a punk rocker, you know? Um, uh, Cause I, I remember actually playing one show in London and uh, Carl from the Libertines was, was there and, and he, after we played, he, we were like went out for drinks and stuff. And he was like, man, you are such a peacock. Um, and like kind of like slamming me. And I was like, really? Like, cause I never really thought of it. I was just, you know, I was just like a small town kid that if people weren't moving, then the show wasn't going well, you know, in at least where we were from in our scene. And so I just like, my main goal wasn't to, to be a vocalist or a songwriter, it was to sort of be the, um, uh, the conductor of the, of the energy of the night. And I really did try and prioritize removing pretentiousness from the room, removing like uptightness and trying to make people feel like, Hey, you know, you can be a snob any other night, but tonight, like, let's just, let's just make this a party and have fun, you know? Um, and then from there I ended up, yeah really loving like maxing out the budget on um on like lighting and like having bat like huge banners and um you know velvet curtains and like dangling edison bulbs that i could spin around and like bat stuff and like and even when we were playing smaller shows you know uh we would go to the dollar store get a million balloons or like go to a party supply place and just get like a million balloons to be all over the stage and it's like if it wasn't a party vibe at the show it just felt awful to me like I just wanted it to be kind of an acknowledgement of hey you paid you paid your hard-earned money to be here so we're going to respect that and give you like the best show possible so having sort of got that sort of showmanship side of things on stage uh, as Pete mentioned, we want to touch as well on the on the recording process that, that followed after because you embarked on building your own studio. So where did the inspiration for that come from? And um, where did you even start with a project like that? Well, we basically when we did Happiness Limited, we it we ended up working with so many different people. We worked with Stuart Sykes, who had done all the White Stripe stuff. We worked with Butch Walker. Um, we worked who's since gone on to do like Weezer and Green Day and the label really wanted us to, to work with Rob Cavallo cause he had had a lot of luck with um, uh, My Chemical Romance and Green Day. And so, so we were like, oh man, we got to play ball because they, Rob Cavallo did My Chem and Green Day who came out at the same time as our last record, Elevator. And I just remember thinking, man, Warner Brothers were like competing against these other two, two bands on the label constantly for Warner Brothers money and promotion and time. And, um, and I know they just, they just think, you know, Rob, Rob Cavallo is everything he touches turns to gold, you know? So after we did the record, they said, you know, we love the record, but that we don't hear a single, you know, like typical kind of Tom Petty lyric situation. And, uh, so we went back and did a couple songs with Rob Cavallo. 
which ended up being the first single. And I, it was my least favorite Hot at Heat song maybe of all time. And I was like, oh, great. The first single is, um, you know, the song that I, I just like wrote in my basement suite. Like at the time I was just living in a tiny little apartment because we were never really at home. And I was like, okay, you want a single? Okay, fine. Uh, everyone had gone their separate ways at the, that point because we thought the album was done. So I just whipped out like this song in a day let me in and then that ended up being the first single and I was like oh this isn't how a band like us is supposed to be and and then so I kind of extended making that record by um we worked with Tim Palmer on re-recording a couple songs and and you know he had been known for David Bowie and um and some other stuff that we loved and then who else? Oh, yeah, we ended up, I went to New York for a month and just lived there and worked with Rich Costi on all the mixes. But then we, you know, flip-flopped and ended up getting Chris Lord out, going to LA and getting Chris Lord Algae to remix stuff. And then we, you know, the, the label was just looking for us to step it up to that kind of like Green Day zone. And so like, then we're like, okay, fine. Uh, let's get strings recorded. Uh, so we ended up, getting like the London orchestra uh, to uh, to record strings for songs at Abbey Road of which only they only appeared on one song on the album in the end and it was just like the most like ludicrous way to spend money um, and I re remembered at the beginning of the album when we were making the album the way we thought we wanted to do it which was at Mushroom Studios in Vancouver again, essentially doing it the same way we did make up the breakdown, just super fast and dirty. Like that was the initial way we wanted to do it. Um, but the label just had a different vision for us. And you could, you could see like, you know, when you're competing with other bands on the label, it's not like, it's not like a question of um, at that point, like, can you just do the record the way you want to do it and they'll promote it the same as they would otherwise? It's like, no, there, there's only a limited resources. You know, there's like 50 bands on the label, three to five will get all the attention. If you want to make it into that top three, like you kind of have to strike a compromise with a label that was in the position that they were at the time. Cause remember like green day had had Boulevard of broken dreams, which was number one on five different radio formats at once in the u.s and yeah so there was just like it became like a different kind of experience um and i remember talking to butch walker uh on a day off just walking around stanley park here in vancouver and he said like the best thing he ever did was after they had some major label success he took the recording budget and just bought a bunch of gear instead of hiring a bunch of producers and just taught himself how to record and he's been sustainable ever since. And so that was basically, I just took that tip um, and did that after happiness limited. He said, you know what? I don't want to spend years making a record. I don't want to spend a small fortune making a record. I want to be able to just make music whenever I want and keep the identity of hot at heat um, true to to what will just be the coolest shit basically. <laughs> um, so, and then I took it one step further. And so I, we were supposed to get a half a million dollar, uh, um, what do you call it? A advance for the next record after happiness limited. But we went into Warner brothers and we just said, you know, 
we want to get off the label because at that point they were you know they were really trying to hustle ringtones it seemed so weird and i was begging them like you go to our website and it was just like it's just seemed like an advertisement for ringtones and i just like fought with them and fought with them and then also it was all about um selling merch because record sales were going down and labels were panicking so it used to be that you walk in at one point when we first signed we walked into the warner brothers office in burbank this huge beautiful 70s architecture building and on the left was like 50 gold records of just classic albums that we grew up loving that were all framed um and then at, at one point they had a, like a huge banner that was like a photo of hot at heat when like the crowd had rushed the stage at the troubadour and it was just it was just like the coolest thing to go to now when we walked in it was just t-shirts everywhere they were that was kind of like their thing was that they're trying to instill like new ways to make money um other than record sales and so i just felt like we need to bail or we'll be dead in the water anyway um so we asked to leave warner we went completely diy i read a lot of tape hop and listened to pensado's place podcast and kind of just um taught myself how to engineer and then we put out future breeds which was um our response to our previous record so we wanted to do everything the opposite of the previous record we wanted to just make it as as fun and arty and weird as we could um and i got it as far as i could and i ran into ryan Dahl at uh one day who's a local musician uh here in town um and he was kind of well known in canada for his his previous bands and he was had a great studio and i said hey i've like recorded this hot eight heat record do you want to tag in with me and like we can finish this together and so we spent eight months just having it was probably the most fun i've ever had like with music was those eight months just opening up hot eight heat songs and just tweaking stuff I had recorded or recording new parts over top of it. And um, yeah, to this day, Future Breeds is one of my, my favorite things I've ever worked on just because it's so, it's the sound of rebelling against myself and Hot at Heat rebelling against itself and, and the sound of seeing the writing on the wall, which was, you know, all our bandmates had to, you know, their bands fizzled out and they had to get day jobs and all this stuff. And I was like, I know we could do another major label album, but I think instead of buying a fish, we got to learn how to fish ourselves. So yeah. Um, and then, yeah, that one was kind of like a lesser known one, of course, cause we didn't have the, you know, the major label push to it, but it, it really set the template um, for me at least for the rest of my life you know and since then it's i've been making records constantly either for side projects of my own or for other bands and um and it's it's kind of ever since then it was you know it was a tough pill to swallow to to consciously leave a major and you know inject like an image of downgrading the band but um I really realized at that point that the thing, the main reward for me of music in general was the process 
not the the final you know final uh creation so you know because by the time we finished making a record i was like cool you know i'm stoked now what now like when can we start making the next one you know um and uh yeah i think at this point i'll probably be doing this for the rest of my life Mm -hmm. so it was it was a tough decision but it i almost didn't really have any option but to to just take what money we had and just invest it in a new chapter and um man yeah it's been really exciting ever since although you know the band's disbanded in the end but um i think that just really had to do with personality types more than anything you know we all kind of were going different ways and um yeah i guess that's another another chapter you know yeah sure and uh, obviously we got the final album hot hot heat the self-titled album um which you sort of declared as well that this was going to be the last one um you know, as it was coming out so it was all sort of nice sort of bookend i guess for that for that uh that era the hot hot heat era um yeah it was nice just to get that sort of bit of finality and it sort of maybe return to the sound of the first couple of albums as well was it yeah yeah that that one was us rebelling against future breeds <laughs> and and just kind of going back to a combination of you know by that point i had i had made um a handful of records and kind of learned what i liked and didn't like so i um and then ryan and i, and I had put out a record with a side project of ours called mounties and we had we'd had some you know some great uh luck with that one in canada and um and had some like radio success with that and then also i had had some uh, a bunch of songs on the radio that i had done with other bands um as like a co-songwriter and a engineer mixer producer whatever and so i kind of it kind of gave me some like a newfound appreciation for um for just writing songs that you know had that craft that needs to go into them um, in order to kind of reach a broader audience because when we did do how to heat elevator that era we were really like psyched on get, getting on the radio whereas with future breeds we were we were doing whatever we could to say like we don't want to be on the radio you know <laughs> um so for the last one we said let's just like let's just um yeah kind of go back to like that old middle ground of make up the breakdown meets um meets elevator but then mixed with like a little bit more of a of a modern you know sound to the production awesome i really like the uh the the running theme here of rebelling against your previous work i I like that hot hot heat journey um (laughs) we're gonna gonna just try and round things off there steve uh, we're gonna finish off with the encore a few few tough questions here for you just to try and pick out a few of your your favorites uh, from things yeah. that we want to w- want from you. So we mentioned a whole bunch of uh, really uh, esteemed bands that you've uh, shared stages with. So can you pick out the, the best band, the band that you were most honored to, uh, to be on the same bill as? Oh man. Um, the, the Walkman were one of my favorite bands we toured with. And I still, I, I love Hamilton Lighthouser's solo stuff. Um, you know, as a guy, he's a bit of a crab, but, uh, <laughs> but he's, but no, he, he was a buddy and, you know, he would, you know, he was really supportive and, 
um, I just I just thought he was one of the singers from our generation that even though he got a lot of cred, you know, with the Walkman and his solo stuff, I still think he, he deserves more credit. I thought he was just so great. Um, and uh, I remember we, we did, we did a show at this, it was like a show uh, in Nippersink outside of Chicago. Um, and it was, it was supposed to, it was this guy that did his first ever festival. He just wanted to put together the, Bass Festival he could so it was but there was it was the same day as um, Lollapalooza in Chicago so he just totally shit the bed and there was like maybe a thousand people there on a festival ground set up expecting like 50 to 100,000 like something ridiculous (laughs) it was the weirdest thing and the lineup was uh, what's the band California California Phantom Planet Planet. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and they were great. And uh, it was Phantom Planet, then us, then Kings of Leon, then Flaming Lips, then uh, Primus. Um, and it was like the craziest lineup and there was nobody there. And I just remember just standing in like a empty crowd watching Kings of Leon play um, play their set and this was like before they kind of became like big pop stars and I just remember like really kind of loving loving them at the time and they they did a thing that we ripped off from that point forward which was they instead of being spread across this massive stage they just all huddled together side by side so they were you know filling up about 20 feet um, so that they you know were playing like they were still a band in in their jam spot um, and I'm sure they've changed since they like kind of blew up after that. But I just remember thinking that that influenced us to just like just try and remember to always play like um, like we're in our jam spot still as kids. And then also at that same show, I remember Wayne Coyne um, setting up his own gear on stage and uh, just having no ego whatsoever. And I just, you know, and we had played with so many bands that had egos like razor light and stuff like that. And, and even like the, like the Pete Doherty thing, like I thought was just like a bit just too much. And I loved that Wayne Coyne was probably the coolest indie pop singer ever. And yet he just like zero ego, just hanging out in the crowd, hanging out with everyone. And that was a big influence and that really stood out. Um, And then Queens of the Stone Age, um, I always, we always took a lot of influence from them um, just in terms of not forgetting the importance of just being a tight killer rock band. You know, like it's regardless of where you're at in your career, like you can never forget that you're just, you're an entertainer at the end of the day. And like, you if you really want to be truly canadian and be respectful and show gratitude then you just really make sure you prioritize entertaining you know um because like you know and as much as we love to like party and have a good time like if it's at the expense of the quality of the show then it's it's just it's whack um yeah there's a it's a bunch of like other like bands i guess that really impressed me i i loved uh 
I loved Modest Mouse. I loved Franz Ferdinand. Um, um, we did some Smashing Pumpkin shows uh, that uh, at one point in Australia, and I and I I was never like a Smashing Pumpkins guy. Like I respected what they were to other people and what they were going for, but it was just kind of like not timed with where I was at in music. But um, but uh, his handler on on the very last night of this tour we did. Uh, like I wouldn't let myself get too messed up or anything because I didn't want to wreck my voice, but it, we had finished our set and it was the last night of the, sh of the tour. And um, so I really tied one on. I, <laughs> I think somebody overserved me and, and uh, <laughs> it was the one time I had a mustache in my life too. And I was just like this drunk goon with a mustache watching Smashing Pumpkins and his handler came up and said, Billy would like to see you. Um, after this, the, the show, um, I was like, Oh God, like I could barely talk at that point. <laughs> and so I just remember, uh, going into his green room and I don't really remember much about what we talked about, but he was, he, he, he said something really nice. He said, you know, you were like one of the, the few bands from the two thousands that I, that I just, I actually thought wasn't total bullshit and i was just like ah oh, yes and i just remember because you struggle with that as a band you know like like how do people see us like should i care like you know sometimes you don't care and other times that like really affects you and but i felt like you know we we shot ourselves in the foot in so many ways because we wanted to stay true to who we were at that time even if it wasn't always like the right move strategically or the trendy thing to do. We just wanted to stay real. And so um, it just, I remember thinking like, okay, somebody sees that we're not full of shit and that feels good to hear. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Nice bit of respect. I like that. I was just thinking about that Phantom Planet. So I keep thinking when, um, when me and my wife got married, we went road tripping through California and I said so we've got to have this plan oh, on the nice. car as we go down the route 101 oh yeah <laughs> there's that lyric in it as well was it driving down the 101 I was yeah, like we've got to it's just like a bit of California yeah so overload on that road trip was, did uh, you did you play it as you were rolling into Big Sur oh <laughs> we did yeah it was just like oh nice yeah yeah, yeah it just, and uh, then what about uh, the, the thrills the thrills uh, and love the thrills Sur. love the thrills yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. they um, their whole album was about their the romance of california and that's a great one to listen to yeah we were uh, yeah all the west coast all the west coast stuff we were playing out on that on that trip all that thousand mile drive or whatever it was that we were ended up clocking up on that higher car yeah good oh, times yeah. good times Ch chili peppers california california californication exactly yeah yeah totally <laughs> Uh, Steve, oh, yeah. second question in the encore. Um, obviously, you've gone through quite a lot of shows there. Is there one that stands out as like the best gig when you felt like you guys were just firing and you were absolutely on it? Yeah, it was. Oh well, performance-wise, or just uh, there was. I mean, there's one gig that stands out in my memory, which was the Inland Invasion in LA, and it was put on by K Rock and. At the time, we had a number one and a number three uh, on K Rock, uh, which was like at the time it still really influenced all of you know rock radio around the state. So it was like it was like the peak of K Rock's embracing of us, and 
um, the show is just like every cool band from the eighties you could think of. Um, but then they would scatter like a, like a current band every, you know, four or five bands. So I can't remember all the bands off the top of my head, but I'm pretty sure it was like Bow Wow Wow and Devo. Um, and, uh, Echo and the Bunnymen and then us, then, uh, the Cure and Depeche Mode. Oh, nice. And it was, it was just awesome. And it was like 50,000 people. It was, it was like the craziest show. Often in the UK, um, not just playing to my crowd here, but, um, like the smaller, the smaller shows, like, um, like playing leads, uh, was it the cockpit? I think it was called. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. And playing, there's a small venue in Sheffield. I just remember that. And um, like the kind of the smaller shows, like uh, we played when we were, this would have been around 2005 playing us like an underground place in Paris. And just those, those kind of shows where there isn't that barricade. And I always, every show would see if I could convince the promoter to, to get rid of the barricade. And often for insurance reasons, they weren't able to, but whenever I could, I, I would pull it off because I just love interacting with the crowd and like either like diving in or like jumping in or just having people rush the stage and stuff. And those kind of moments were, were so fun, you know, where you actually feel the, the energy of the crowd as opposed to, when the lighting is and stuff is like, you know, on you and you can't even see anybody, you know? Yeah, absolutely. When you, when you have that sort of, those, those intimate gigs, you really have that close up feel where you really do uh, bounce, the, the energy bounces off from band to audience in, in a really special way. So uh, yeah, it can be yeah. coming from there. Like, totally. It's, it's such a big thing. And then also uh, just to stick with the theme of like all the kind of nerdy details, um, there were certain venues um that had really good monitors and really good monitor like guys that ran the monitor or girls that ran the monitor you know um and it's really it's people don't when you're in the audience most people don't know, realize how much of the show can be impacted by the monitor the person running the monitors you know and the quality of the monitors so you know um i feel like audio is such a huge priority in the uk you know like so many of you know, sound on sound, all those kind of, you know, so many advancements in sound start in the UK because it's such a big priority there. And I just remember playing certain venues like the university in Manchester where they had excellent monitors and a really like caring monitor guy. And it's just, it to you on stage, it sounds like you're playing the best show of your life, you know? And then there's other, so many shows where you hop on stage and for whatever reason, it just, it sounds so unflattering, unflattering in your monitors or in your in-ears or whatever, um, that you're like, how on earth would anyone be enjoying this right now? Um, and so the better it sounds in your ears, the, the more you just feel like an actual, you know, golden God. <laughs> and so you perform, you perform as one. So um, I remember like, yeah like certain shows in the UK, like in Manchester and, um, and, uh, and in some venues in London. And, um, but yeah, I, I really like the, like Birmingham and I just like the, like 
the non main uh like off the beaten path slightly like the big city shows like in usually like the la new york london those are the kind of shows where you have to do press during the days uh so your voice is kind of getting strained you have to wake up early so you're you know you're kind of tired and then you've got you know everyone that you've ever met in those cities that it's in your best interest to reconnect with them and so you're kind of um you're kind of touring tour managing your own guest list the entire day and then by the time you play you know you're just you're just so exhausted from being a host to uh you know like the like the zane lows and people that are like yeah text me if you're in town you know those kind mm -hmm. of situations and um actually this this when the strokes played here in town their uh their tour manager sends out an email and i wish we had done this ahead of time too if you're receiving this email you are on the guest list um in order for the band to concentrate on doing um the best show they can uh like like please you know do not contact them leading up to the show and blah 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 um which kind of makes sense because usually in major cities you're just exhausted by the time you go on um but then i thought oh okay like they i'll be respectful and i won't you know bug them or anything and then and then the next day uh, he texted me and was like why didn't you come say hi like <laughs> like it sounded like he was actually like choked and i was like I, I got this email it sounded like you guys you know don't want anyone to bug you um but i kind of wish we did that because so much of touring is the quality of the show is based on like how much energy you have and you know and it's just such an exhausting thing to tour you know it's just all day every day you know with you know one day off a week and that day you're usually just like in bed and dead to the world and you know doing your laundry um and so yeah i guess to answer your question in a really long roundabout way uh the best shows were often the smaller, smaller towns where you don't know anybody. You don't have, you, there's no press to be done. You can maybe just like wander around and buy like, you know, go to a thrift store and buy like a funny t-shirt or something. And you actually get to be a tourist for, for a few minutes, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Actually get to see, see the places that you're playing, not just, uh, not just a stage. Excellent. So, um, last question of, of podcast, Steve, um, can you pick out the Hot Hot Heat song that you're proudest of? The song that sticked out for you? Um, I, well, I really like Magnitude from the last Hot Heat record. Um, can I give you a few and then I can maybe whittle it down to one? I don't know. <laughs> I, 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 love, <laughs> I, I love Magnitude from the last Hot Heat record. Um, I really love Kid Who Stays in the Picture from the last record. Um, I love, I love like the the lesser known ones usually uh, just cause I, I don't associate them with like as much baggage in a weird way. So um, I love more for show off of knock, knock, knock. I love um, move on from the UK single for bandages. It was the B side, my best fiend from happiness limited dirty mouth from elevator from make up the breakdown i would say i really liked aveda from that one um i don't know what what are your guys's favorites i think for me <laughs> like, off, off, off that day you obviously like 
yeah, it's easy to say something like bandages, but oh god damn it, I think it's like that's for me. I love that where it sort of breaks awesome. down for the chorus, sort of the melody. We talked earlier about sort of putting some melody in there, and I think yeah, that, that chorus yeah. is just fantastic. That was actually the song that uh, that made the other guys go. Maybe you should be singing in the bands because I wrote that one in in my bedroom. Just I had roommates at the time, and I was so I was just doing these little bedroom pop songs, and I would sing my vocals under my duvet so nobody heard me and then and then uh andy dixon who had put out the first release on on eight records which was his record label and actually ended up going on to be a worldwide like crazy famous painter artist and he did the artwork for the last hot heat album actually um the cover the cover art and the single art is all done by andy um uh yeah, he he logged into my Napster account um, back when Napster was a thing, and I had had a I had had that song um, in my files that people could download for me from like peer to peer or whatever, and that was yeah. the song that made him go like, "Oh man, I want to put this out on Ake as like your solo record." And then so that that's when the guys were like, "Why don't you just sing for the band and and uh, we'll we'll use that that song on the album." Um, and, but they, the, they made it way cooler because Paul's an awesome drummer and, and Dustin was like you know he just his bass lines were just so signature to his style and um, you know I was I was really he was like the best probably one of the best bass players I've ever known in my life and then we were really fortunate on the last two Hot It Heat albums we had Parker Bosley who I still make records with to this day I'm probably work with him at least once or twice a week um and he's kind of become one of my favorite co-writers and we we started a little project called fur trade which we've got a new record coming out um coming out soon uh but and then um but he's also played live with mounties whenever we did a mounty show and he's kind of been the hot heat bass player for years and he, him and Dustin are probably my two favorite bass players ever and you can really hear Parker's style all over this the last Hot Eight Heat record and you can really hear Dustin's style just encapsulated on that on Make Up the Breakdown um, especially in Oh God Damn It like his like kind of bouncy quirky style that's really influenced by yeah just kind of like 90s Brit pop and and like 90s punk rock I guess yeah I just love the the lyrics but the rhyming all the way through those lines that sort of the sort of the rhythm of the rhyming is it's just uh yeah it must have taken you yeah. a while to figure out all those uh all those oh lessons. man no no it was like I'm almost like I don't want to say embarrassed but I really did not prioritize the lyrics at all <laughs> but it's kind of what what it also makes it cool, I guess. But um, for me, it was just, like I said, I was just thinking like a drummer. Um, and I was just, yeah, to me, it was, just, it was all about just painting a picture and a feeling. Um, and I never really sat down and wrote lyrics first ever in my life. Um, and, um, but now I, you know, I, as time went on, like I went to like really be fascinated by lyrics and, and how they make me feel and um 
you know, and I, the same reason why I'm, you know, really love hip hop lately. Not, not for like the bombastic kind of braggadocious side of it, but just like, just like the side of hip hop where it's like, oh man, you can really paint a narrative um, and tell a story in three minutes with hip hop way better than you can with, with indie rock. So if you do have a story to tell, like hip hop's the genre to do it in, you know. Nice one, Steve. Thanks so much. You've given us so much of your time today. It's been really good to sort of hear all these stories and the details of, of the albums, the gigs, the uh, everything around the band. It's been really good fun. Oh, man. Well, I really appreciate you guys, Karen, and anyone that's made it to the end of this. Like, thanks for letting me ramble. <laughs> anyway, cool, man. Also, you know, I'll talk to you guys soon. Yeah, nice one, mate. Thanks. Cheers, Steve. Take care.